This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I met my friend Peter about 20 years ago. I was serving as a pastor out in Long Island at the time. And yes, for Long Island. Um, and um, that really threw me off, but that was fun. So anyway, um, <laughs> Peter, on a weekly basis, he had the ability to greatly annoy me. So every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, after I would preach, he would hang around, and then he would come to me, and he would give me a critique of my sermon. Now, Peter and I were from very different backgrounds. Um, he grew up in Manhattan, in the heart of the city. He grew up in a Jewish family, a Jewish follower of Jesus, and he taught physics to med students at Columbia University, which means he was really, really smart. Um, I'm from Minnesota, grew up in a nominally Catholic family, and I'm not that smart. So anyway, um, Peter would come up to me and he would say, well, that was a good sermon, but, and it was always start like this, exactly the same way. That was a good sermon, but let me tell you how I look at that passage from Jewish eyes as a Jewish follower of Jesus. And then he would launch into this, what I felt like was a critique, and about me personally. So I put up with this for four years, because Peter's very persistent and I'm very patient. So this little dance went on for four years, and finally, I'd had enough, so I said, why do you keep coming up, with, up to me every time after my sermon? I'm really tired. I've had enough. I don't need your critiques. I, I just, I'm really tired of this, Peter. And Peter laughed. <laughs> he said, I think I know what's going on here. And I said, okay, tell me. He said, well, you see, growing up in a Jewish home, in Jewish family, especially a New York Jew, we grow close by confrontation by working through things. And we like to argue. And he said there's a saying that if there's two rabbis in a room, you will have five opinions, because that's just the way Jewish people are. You know, we like to talk about things and argue about things and, and contend together. And it's by contending that we achieve intimacy. Actually, you grow more intimate while you're contending. Does that sound right, Thomas? <laughs> One of our Jewish background friends here. It's exactly the same way. And he said, I bet you didn't grow up that way in Minnesota. And I said, no, not at all. <laughs> Actually, contending and arguing is a sign that the relationship is broken. It's broken down. He said, oh, no, that's not the way it is for us. When Peter told me that, it unlocked something for me to understand him, and we wound up becoming really good friends and he taught me a lot about the Bible, but it also unlocked something for me in the Bible, in how to read the Bible. Because the sweeping narrative, the story of the Bible, is God in search of a relationship with his people and God in search of a relationship with you. But he wants the real you. He doesn't want the fake you. He doesn't want the pretend you. He doesn't want the, just the nice you. He wants the you with all your anguish and all your doubts and all your questions and all your agony and all your sinfulness and all your brokenness. He says, bring it all to me. Now, the church in her wisdom or, um, put together the gospel reading about the widow with the story about Jacob from Genesis 32. It's a great pairing. It's like salmon and a fine Chardonnay. This was brilliant to put these two together. So Genesis chapter 32, you have Jacob fleeing from his brother who he thinks hates him and is out to get him, desperate, 
And he cries out to God, and he wrestles with this angel of the Lord. He says, I've seen God face to face. And he changes his name to Israel. You are one who contends with God. And that will forever define you and your people. So no wonder the Jewish people are that way. And then we heard our psalm, that the psalmist crying out to the Lord. I cry out to you, Lord. I pour out my complaints to you, Lord. So all of that is background for understanding what Jesus is trying to tell us in the gospel reading. And I want to invite you to turn there. It's on page 877 in your Bibles. And turn there because we're going to walk through this. Now, this, this parable, um, the Word of God has done us a real huge favor because sometimes you read the Bible and you go, I don't know what that means. And before this story, Jesus even tells this story, he says, this is what, uh, the gospel writer Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is what it means. This is what I want you to get out of this, this parable. So look at verse 1 in Luke chapter 18. It says, he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. Here's the point of this story. I want you to pray, not just any prayers, but to pray in a certain kind of way that we're going to explore in this parable. Pray in a really Jewish kind of way. I want you to pray this way and not lose heart. That little phrase, not lose heart, is really important because Jesus is talking about something that, that is deadly, not only to your spiritual life, but just to your life. One of the gravest dangers in your life, not, or like, the gravest danger of your life is not that you will die. As a Christian, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. There are worse things that can happen to you. And Jesus says one of those worst things that can happen to you is you can lose your heart. You can die before you die. Does that make sense? You die before you die, you lose your heart. You, you become a, a, a hollow, you become numb, you become detached, you become cold. You become a, an escape artist. You become distracted. You become cynical. You're filled with something toxic, either anger or resentment or lust, or maybe you've been hurt and wounded, and, and you're holding on to those hurts like there's something precious to you. Or maybe you read the news, and you see all the violence and the corruption and the lies, and, and it just makes you so disheartened. You lose your heart. Now, first thing I want to say is, remember who's telling the, this, this, this parable. Who's telling it is Jesus, the friend of sinners. He is the friend of sinners to people. He's the friend of people who have lost their hearts or who are losing their hearts, who are in danger of losing their hearts. He is the one that sees our broken hearts, our shattered hearts, our discouraged hearts, our angry hearts, our hardened hearts. And he is the one who is the friend of sinners. And we're going to gather around the Lord's table and remember that he's the one that can restore our hearts and give us a new heart. So let's look at the parable and the two characters. Verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge. We'll just call him the judge, okay? Who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow, we'll call her Mavis. Now if your name is Mavis, I bet you've never been the hero of a story before. Today you're the hero. A widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. The judge is a bad man, but he has this going for him. He has one redeeming quality. He's very self-aware of how bad he is. So in verse three, or verse two, it says, he neither feared God nor respected man. In verse four, he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man. 
He's very good at assessing himself. He knows where he stands, and he's not ashamed of it. Just, that's just who I am. That's the kind of person I am. I imagine him sitting on a large cedar deck with all his buddies. Now, I like cedar decks, by the way, so if you have a nice cedar deck, I'm not, but he's sitting on his nice cedar deck overlooking his private lake, and they're all smoking cigars with his buddies, drinking some bourbon, and he's telling this story about this widow who just keeps coming, and she's nagging me, and she's, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice, and they all start laughing. He mocks her. Now, this is particularly outrageous for two reasons. First, because God in the Old Testament set up judges with a very specific job description. Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 19, 6. God instructs judges and he says, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice in the Lord your God. You will be judged if you judge with injustice. And the second reason why it's particularly outrageous because God, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, God loves widows. God loves the most vulnerable. He loves them. And he says, if you mess with widows, I promise you that I will hunt you down and I will do terrible things to you. Literally, he says that. If you mistreat them, this is Exodus chapter 22, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And there's more, etc., etc. God promises terrible things. Now, on the other hand, remember, Jesus is the friend of sinners, so we can repent. So that's the judge. Then there's the widow. Now, I want us to just pause and note that Jesus is telling a story, and the hero of this story is a woman. It's really important. And the, the writer Luke, who also wrote the New Testament book of Acts, will often do this. He'll pair two stories back to back, one with a woman uh, model of the faith and one with a man follower of the faith. It's very intentional, and it repeats many times throughout Luke and Acts. Now, I mention this, and I, I pull this out because there is the idea that Christianity is, is inherently, at its, in its roots, it is misogynistic. It suppresses women. And I just want to say that is blatantly untrue. We see Jesus constantly lifting up women. And we would, at Church of the Resurrection, we would say that there are really crucial sacramental distinctions between men and women, between male and female. I mentioned that in the first sermon, and somebody afterwards asked me, what did you mean by that phrase? And I kind of stood there like, oh, how can I explain that? And Deacon Will was standing there, and he said, oh, that just means that um, male, we are embodied creatures as male and female, and that, that embodiment points to larger realities that really matter. Oh, wow, that was good. That was really good. Thanks, Will. So he's helping me write my sermon. Um, so what do we know about Mavis? Well, she's a woman, and that's important. She's powerless. She's vulnerable. The odds are stacked against her. We don't know if she's eloquent. We don't know if she's super smart. We do know this, though. She is persistent. She is tough. She is tenacious. 
She is like a pit bull with a bone, and you better not mess with her. But notice something else in verse 3. She has an adversary. She has someone who's making her life harder. So I imagine Mavis, imagine her. She lives in an 11th floor, cheap apartment building. She has her toilet doesn't work. Her heat doesn't work. It's getting colder. And her landlord is a slumlord, and he won't help her. He does not return her phone calls. He ignores her. And winter's coming, and she needs relief. She can't fix it. She can't overcome it. So the question becomes, who is going to give her justice? The word justice occurs four times in this passage. And I don't want us to get too, want it to get too complicated what that word means. It just simply means somebody who has no rights, somebody who is being actively a victim of injustice, and, and that person has no recourse. Where is she going to get justice? The world is filled with adversaries. The world is filled with Mavises. I don't know this for sure, but I find it hard to believe that Jesus didn't know an actual woman like Mavis or women Mavis-like that were in trouble. Adversaries that preyed on the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. If you read the book of Psalms, you will find prayers all over the place where the psalmist is praying to God to help the weak against the strong who are oppressing them. For instance, Psalm chapter 10, verse 2, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the greedy one, or I'm sorry, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. You will find verses like this all over the place throughout the Psalms. I want us to see, there's an old hymn that I actually really like called Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer that draws me from a world of care. And that is so true, and that's a beautiful part of prayer. But I also want us to see that prayer is warfare. Prayer is warfare, anti-violent warfare against violence and oppression. It's an act of love, but it's a warfare kind of love. There are adversaries, other kind of adversaries in the world. There are literal people that prey on literal poor people. That's one form of adversary. But the Bible also talks about adversaries in other ways. Death is an adversary. Satan and the powers of the demons are adversaries. Sin is an adversary that traps us. Anything that, that oppresses us, any situation or problem or sin that easily clings to us can be an adversary. This widow, our mentor, our guide, our saint to follow, she asks us, I think, what adversary are you facing? What adversaries break your heart? He wants, Jesus wants to put ourselves in this story. And notice what she does. What does she do? She keeps coming. She just keeps coming. She keeps coming to him. Verse 4, for a while, the judge refused. But afterward, he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Um, in the original language, the language of Greek, in the original language, that word for beat me down is literally a term from boxing. It's a boxing term which means to punch somebody and give them a black eye. So did you catch the humor in this story? Jesus has a sense of humor. Okay? It's, it's subtle, but he's funny. So what he's saying is, little 4'11", 100-pound Mavis, without any resources, she's got this big, bad, arrogant judge on the ropes, and he's scared. He's scared he's going to get a black eye, probably more a black eye of shame than a literal black eye, but he's kind of afraid of her, and so he doesn't really change his heart his heart is still hard. He's still a cold man, but he gives her what she asks for because she just keeps bothering me. And then Jesus uses a, a very um, a traditional Jewish argument uh, called how much more that goes like this. If A is true, then how much more is B true? So if A is true, that the widow could get this bad judge to listen to her and to hear her cry and to pay attention to her, how much more, Jesus is saying, will your Father in heaven, who loves you, who wants to hear from you, who waits to hear from you, who loves, Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Luke, loves to give good gifts to his children, how much more will he listen to you and listen to your requests? He's poking fun of our sometimes ridiculous images of God. You think God's, you think God's kind of like that judge, don't you, sometimes? You think he's mean. You think he's cruel. You think he's reluctant. Or you think he's some distant pagan deity that you have to work yourself up to a frenzy to get his attention. That's not true. God is your father. He is father all the way down in his character. And he will give justice to his elect, Jesus says, to his children who cry to him day and night. Now, I want us to understand something about prayer is that Jesus is inviting us through prayer into participation with the work of the living God in the world. C.S. Lewis said this, God has not chosen to write the whole history of the world with his own hand. He could have done that. In a way, he largely does that. But Lewis said it's like a play. And the author of the play has set up the stage, written the plot and the script, and basically done most of the work, but he has allowed some freedom for the actors that are part of the play to participate with the play. In other words, to say, hey, um, writer of the play, author of the play, I guess that's called an author, author of the play, what if we said this? Or what if we made this prop, prop over here? And sometimes the author will go, mm, that's not a bad idea. Uh, maybe someday I'll tell you why, but that's just not going to work. Or sometimes he might say, yeah. I like that. 
thanks for thinking of that. I mean, I already thought of that, but I like that. Let's do that. I like that. You see how prayer is participating with God's ongoing work in the world and for people you love. Here's the agonizing part, though. Look at verse 7. Jesus asks a question. Will he delay long over them? That's the agony of prayer, if we're all honest. There is a gap between the promise of God and its fulfillment. There's a gap between what is right now and what will be. There's a gap between the way it's not supposed to be and the way it is supposed to be. There's a gap between the weeping and the dancing. Have you ever felt that in your life? I bet you have. What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? What is aching inside of you? What does Jesus have to say to this? He asks the question. He raises it. Again, he's the friend of sinners. He raises it for us. Just in case you're afraid to raise it, let me raise it. And what does he say? He says to them at the end of verse, he, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily when the Son of Man comes. Who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus' term for himself throughout the Gospels. It's based on an Old Testament term. I am the Son of Man, and when I come... Luke chapter 18 comes right after Luke chapter 17, which is all about the second coming of Jesus. He's talking about his coming again. And then he goes right into this parable. He says, when I come, look to the end, think eschatologically. Eschaton is about the end of all things, Christ coming again. When I come again, I tell you, he will answer them, he will give them justice speedily. Now, speedily doesn't mean instantly. Like you pray for something and bam, there it is. There's your answer. It means more like decisively. Like when Jesus comes, it will be decisive. It will be decisively done. So when he comes, there will be decisive healing for the nation's from the leaves of the tree of life. As it says in the book of Revelation, there will be healing for every tear that has been shed. There will be decisive victory over death and sorrow and human sin and corruption and dishonesty and injustice. There will be an immediate end to genocide and school shootings and abortions and human trafficking and slumlords and demonic darknesses. It will be, as St. Paul says in a great line in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it will be like you blink and boom. That's what the Bible says. And that's why Jesus is telling us, pray with that in view so you don't lose heart in the situations that you're going through right now. And he says, he's saying, pray. But don't just say prayers. Actually live your life in a certain kind of way. Live your life like Jacob. 
contending before the face of God. Live your life like the psalmist. I pour out my complaint to you. I cry out to you. Lament and ask and seek and knock and engage and confront and question. God can take it all. But remember who you're talking to. Again, you're not talking to some distant pagan deity that you have to somehow get their attention. You're talking to one who wants to be your father. You're talking to Jesus, the friend of sinners. You're talking to the spirit who indwells you, the triune God of grace. Then notice how Jesus ends this story. Because it ends with just like one of these parables that just ends with a boom. Verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You question me all you want. Bring your questions. But I have one question for you. Let me question you. Just one. When I come back, will I find faith in you? Will I find faithfulness in you? And then Jesus leaves it hanging. In other words, let me ask you, what is the condition of your heart? Have you lost heart? Are you losing heart? Is your heart struggling? Is it hard? Is it cold? Is it callous? Is it filled with something toxic? Do you check out far too often? Numb your heart? Jesus wants us to assess the condition of our heart, but not stop there. Bring it to him. Bring me your weary heart. Bring me your broken heart. Bring me your wounded heart. Bring me your sinful heart, your deadened heart. Let me cleanse it, renew it, restore it. In a moment, you're going to hear Canon Stephen hold up the bread and Deacon Will hold up the cup. And Father Stephen, Canon Stephen will say, feed on him by faith with thanksgiving. That is the call of this Eucharistic table that we're going to be invited to. Feed on him. We believe in him, we trust in him, and we feed on his goodness until he transforms our heart. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.